All right, John 14, verses 8 through 14. Actually, I'm going to pick up in 7, because that kind of ties into what we're talking about. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Did I start in the wrong spot? Oh, yeah, sorry. If you have known me, you will also have known my father. For now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. In this instance, through the living word, your Son, that we might know that there is joy in your presence, that we might know that there is a joy greater than the joy we seek in this world. So to have joy, it is vital that we understand and believe your word. We need your spirit to illuminate the word for us so that we can understand it. We need your spirit to work in our hearts and our minds that we would believe and treasure what your word says. Fill us with lasting joy this morning in accordance with your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the living word who died for both your joy and ours. Amen. As you know, um, I love movies. And um, one of the things that happened with the success of Pulp Fiction is that it spawned a number of movies that were very similar in how they structured themselves. Movies like uh, Magnolia, Crash, and Traffic. And what structured them was confusion, in a sense. And that they had these very different storylines that ran through the movie, and you spend most of the movie kind of wondering, how in the world do these stories fit together? And usually near the end, there's something that happens that brings, ties all of these seemingly disparate threads back together. What doesn't make sense earlier now makes sense. This scripture, I think, is one of those things where there's these different things going on and we're not exactly sure what to make of these. Jesus seems to be jumping all over the place, but I believe there's a common theme that runs through these, and that is that theme of that word that uh, was on our Facebook page. Perichoresis, indwelling, makes sense, I think, of what's going on throughout this text. 
So I've changed the big idea because I didn't like the big idea. I was never happy with it on Thursday when I put it down on paper. But nonetheless, the new big idea is the mystery of the Trinity is mutual indwelling. And uh, that is, I'm not even happy with that. So maybe the ministry of Jesus and his people, the mystery of ministry is mutual indwelling. How's that? That might work better. Let's start off with this, that the Son reveals the Father who dwells in him. You see, Jesus had said in verse 7 that from now on, from this point forward, you do know the Father and you have seen the Father, which prompts what may seem initially to be a rather innocent request from Philip, Jesus, probably doesn't say this. I don't understand what you just said. That's probably what's lying underneath. I haven't figured out what you really mean by this, that we have seen the Father. Show us the Father, he says, and it is enough for us. In other words, just do this one thing, Jesus, and we will be content. Show us the Father. And this, I believe, reveals two things about what's going on here. And the first is that Philip, who probably is speaking for everyone else, sort of like Peter often does, Philip reveals that they had not yet fully comprehended what Jesus has been saying over the course of his earthly ministry. There's so much, like when Jesus says, the Father and I are one, that sort of went in one ear and out the other without them going, now wait a minute, what does that mean? And apparently they didn't, you know, talk to Jesus later and say, hey Jesus, I'm really confused about that. Can we talk about it? So there seems to be a lack of comprehension on their part. But secondly, I believe it also, based on the response of Jesus, that it reveals unbelief in at least Philip's heart, and if not the rest of the disciples. Not total unbelief, but an element of unbelief with regard to what Jesus is saying here and what he has said through the course of his earthly ministry with respect to his relationship with the Father. Not only do they not understand it, perhaps, but they also don't believe it. If you show him to us, that will be enough. That is really often the statement of unbelief. The, the claim that just one more piece of information and, and that will be enough for me. I will be satisfied. I will believe. And there really, in the face of unbelief, is never enough evidence. There's always the cry for a little bit more, a little bit more, and, and then I might believe. Till Jesus does something amazing in the heart that grants belief. But Jesus makes this bold statement. And this really is something that, uh, that is run throughout the whole gospel. He's just summing up, in a sense, what he's been saying all along. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, he's not talking about, you know, I have my Father's nose. Or I have my Father's eyes. I have the, the cheek structure of my Father. But he's more talking about the character of the Father. We see that Jesus is declared to be, 
throughout Scripture, the image of God in the flesh. That's what we see the very the prologue of John's Gospel, uh, that, that He is God enfleshed. God made man. And we see this built in places like 1 Corinthians, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Whereas Adam was made in the image of God and fell in sin and therefore corrupted the image of God, Jesus has always been the image of God and perfectly reveals it, has never been corrupted by sin. So as the second Adam, Jesus is the full, complete, perfect image of God. We see that as well in Second Colossians 2, 9-10. Also as well, Hebrews chapter 1, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. And here's the point. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so when we think of Jesus, we need to think of Him as the exact representation of God. Not physically. God's not a Jewish carpenter. okay. But in terms of His character, who He was, and how it plays out as we saw in Psalm 111, and what He does and what He says, all of those are reflections of who He is. Just like your words and your actions, unfortunately too often, are reflections of who you are. They reveal too often your sinfulness and your frailty and your forgetfulness. But in Jesus, they reveal His perfections, His love, His justice, His mercy. And so that is why we read in John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who sorry, the only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known or has interpreted Him or has exegeted Him. And so Jesus has come in part in His earthly ministry to make the Father known to such a degree that He's able to say, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. We're just alike. And it's this, this idea of The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. This is precisely how He makes the Father known, how He makes God known. Because they're both fully God, and we're going to kind of explain this, but Jesus is the spitting image of His Father. The perfect reflection of the Father. And since He cannot help but be God, He will act like God, He will speak like God, and therefore all He says and does reveals the Father. Now, imagine if Moses showed up again. Think of Exodus 33, when Moses says to God, you know, he's of course frustrated because the people have already rebelled against the Word of God down in the valley. But he says on the mountain, show me your glory. this was taking place during the ministry of Jesus, he would say, you've seen it in my Son. You need look no further. There is my glory. My glory is in my Son. He is the perfect representation 
of me. Jesus is exasperated. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And so faith alone can receive this rather, in a sense, cryptic kind of statement because our minds can barely understand this idea that the Cappadocian fathers named perichoresis, mutual indwelling, because they're trying to figure out what Jesus means. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. This is in some ways... Um, we can get a little bit of what he means, but I don't think we grasp the fullness of what he means. And this is where the statement by Augustine comes in handy. If you can understand it, it's not God. Okay? <laughs> God is beyond our understanding. As Calvin says, he lisps to us that we might have true knowledge of God, but we cannot have exhaustive knowledge of God. We have enough to, to know Him and to trust Him and to walk with Him, but we will not have exhaustive, complete knowledge because He is the infinite and we are the finite. Think even for a moment of the incarnation. How is it that the Spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging can be located in a human body? Well, it's not like he got shrunk down in size and got stuffed in this. We see even from the uh, the, uh, the dedication of the temple in Solomon's that we read earlier from First Kings. It's not that God was was located only in the in the temple because God is too big to fit into the temple. Solomon recognized that God was really in heaven and everywhere, but that is the place where his presence dwells in a special, particular way, and therefore the people were to look to the temple to meet with God. And there's a sense in which this God dwells in a particular way in the person of Jesus Christ, the God who dwells everywhere. And because we have three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're all infinite, eternal, and unchanging, they all occupy, in a sense, the same space. The Father dwells in the Son, the Son dwells in the Father, the Son dwells in the Spirit, and the Spirit dwells in the Son, and the Spirit dwells in the Father, and the Father in the Spirit. They all dwell in one another. Because they are all infinite, as Gerald Bray says, the persons occupy the same infinite divine space. But it's not just about metaphysics. I think what this is pointing us to, in a sense, is the relationship that they have with one another. Because the Scriptures, as John declares in his, in his letter, God is love, and therefore the relationship they have with each other is this infinite community of love together as three persons. That stretches my mind. I'm almost afraid to talk about it because I'm afraid that I'll err in some way and speak heresy to you. It's dangerous stuff in a sense, but it's stuff that we must discuss. And so they live in dwelling each other 
loving each other, and therefore revealing each other. And so when we think about Jesus' ministry, as we're about to get into, it's a manifestation of that mutual indwelling. All right? So the Son, being in the exact image of the Father, reveals the Father in all that He does. Secondly, the Father worked through the Son that He dwells in. You see, Jesus is going to press things a little further to help us grasp what what we mean by this term that the Cappadocian fathers came up with to explain it. We've already seen how Jesus, as our mediator... Okay, in previous texts, as our mediator, he submitted to the will of the Father. He did not have an eternal submission. It's not, you know, the nature of the Son to submit to him eternally, so to speak. But as the God-man, as the mediator, he lives in submission to the Father. And this means that he only did and said what the Father instructed him to do and say. And so he functions in many ways like an ambassador sent by the President of the United States to communicate particular messages and to do certain things in a foreign nation to the people of that nation. He's not to wing it as he goes. Yeah. Jesus says, the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's explaining what it is he means by I do nothing except what the Father tells me because it's the Father who dwells in me who does these works. The Father dwells in Jesus, which means he's working in him to do and to say that which he wants. So that It's not just, this is what the Father told me to do, but the Father is also working in me to produce these words, to produce these deeds. I'm not simply working under the Father's authority, but the Father is also working through me. That's tough for us, who are essentially materialists, to figure out. It's tough for us to believe. But Jesus has said this. So the Father is not only exercising authority, but he is also working in Jesus to do this. And this shows us, I believe, that the Father and the Son work together, which adds, I think, importance, gravitas, seriousness to what he says and what he does. One of my friends in Florida is mind-boggled about a comment that I made with regard to one of the candidates. And my comment back to him was, I don't want a flippant president. There's nothing Jesus did that was flippant. So we should believe that Jesus is the Savior on the basis of his words, but also he says, and my works. If, if that's not good enough for you, Philip, believe on the basis of what I've done. You've been here the whole time. You've seen it all. Do you think I could turn water into wine at a wedding if the Father was not in me? Do you think that I could heal the man 
born blind if the Father was not at work in me? Philip, do you think I could heal the paralytic if the Father was not at work in me? That's the import. That's kind of, that's the point of kind of where he's going with all of this. And so his earthly ministry was really a function of the Father being at work in him. It was not Jesus on his own. You know, you know, I have sent you, now go do. But the Father goes with to do. So, Jesus does all that he does because the Father dwells in him. And now, this third part may sound a little disconnected from that. I hope it's, I can help you see the connection that's in my brain anyway. And that is that the ascended Son works in us through prayer. Jesus is shifting from his ministry on earth to the disciples' ministry, and therefore, by extension, our ministry. That's where he's going. And that idea of indwelling is going to reappear, and uh, I'm going to sneak it in from the verses that follow. So it's not going to be explicit in what we see here. I'm borrowing from what's to come. But Jesus says this astounding statement that R.C. Sproul still struggles with, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do greater. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look at my life, I can't look back and see, yeah, I've, I've healed blind people. I've made lame people walk. I, I've changed the substance of one thing into something else. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at, at least for us. We'll kind of develop on that in a, in a moment. But we do see that in their ministry in Acts, the apostles performed many miracles, just as Jesus did. We see that particularly in that little section we read in Acts chapter 5. But not only that, they saw abundant conversions. The purpose of the miracles were to authenticate the gospel message that they had, and we see that it worked, in a sense, through the numerous conversions that took place in the book of Acts. After the apostolic period, and you might disagree with me, and that's okay, I think, the God who worked miracles to authenticate the message now uses the ordinary means of ministry. The message has been authenticated through the ministry of the apostles. I, I don't think I'm supposed to be going out and performing miracles. That, that doesn't mean God is in a box. doesn't mean that God can't heal somebody miraculously. I do believe he does that, but that's just not normal. That is not to be expected, I would say. But we see through the history of the church that God has worked through ordinary means to do great things. That Christians have paved the way for social advancement in so many ways. They've been directly involved in, in medical advancement. Where do, where do you think most of the hospitals in the Western world came from? The church. Education. 
where do you think most of the educational uh, institutions in the Western world came from? The church. Who were the people who were at the forefront of the abolitionist movement? Unfortunately, there were some Christians who were fighting the abolitionist movement, but the church. William Wilberforce saw it as a function of his faith to fight the end for the end of the slave trade in Britain. The ordinary sorts of means that take place to do great things that result in the salvation of many through the ministry of Jesus Christ and the gospel message. Do you want to do great things? How can we do great things? Or shall I say anything in our ministry as individuals and as a body? We are able to do these things, and the apostles were able to do these things because I am going to the Father, Jesus says. And this ties back to his ascension after his resurrection. The ascension of Jesus to be seated upon the throne of David at the right hand of God the Father is essential to us being able to do great things for the gospel, so to speak, or through the gospel in this world. Jesus sits on the Davidic throne. He's the fulfillment of the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7, which Solomon refers to in the dedication of the temple. That there will always be a son of my father upon this throne, and that son is Jesus. Of the flesh, as it says in Romans 1, born of the line of David, and now sits upon the throne forever and ever to rule. And so we're able to do these things because Jesus sits ascended upon the throne and pours out His Spirit upon His people. That's not it. Or that's not all of it, I should say. Jesus continues, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We need to be careful. This does not give us a blank check for our own desires. Jesus does qualify it with that phrase, in my name, and that is a very significant sort of qualifier. That what we are praying is intended to be for Him and for His glory, and not to satisfy our own selfish motives. number of years ago, a family friend of the DeGroats was dying of cancer. And it was uh, one of the fall, not the fall fests, farm fests. See, I confused them in my feeble mind. So all of these extended people, and Todd was there, and his family was there, and there was a a sincere desire for Todd to be healed. And yet the way in which it was sort of expressed, it was almost like, if we pray for this, it will happen. And I was like, may not happen. 
I don't know what is and God intends for his glory in this particular circumstance. We have to be careful about all of these things. But I think what Jesus is, is pr- asking us to pray about here in particular is the words and the works of ministry, not so that my car gets fixed, however important that is, and it is important. But the idea here is that Jesus, in whom God, the fullness of God dwells, is in fact the new living temple to whom our prayers are intended to be directed. Okay, The old temple of Solomon had been destroyed. The temple of Herod was about to be destroyed. We were not, not to look to a physical place anymore like the Muslims pray to, to Mecca. We are to look to Christ when we pray because He is the new temple given for that very purpose. We look to Him and we pray. And so we have this... This is not the only place we're encouraged to pray. For instance, Philippians 4, which we looked at last week, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge... And this is this is a public worship service he's talking about in 1 Timothy 1. Uh, sorry, 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And he continues to talk about how kings are part of all people. The idea that I believe Jesus wants us to grasp is that ministry effectiveness is rooted in prayer because he has ascended, but he also dwells in us. That's what I'm borrowing from the rest of it. Jesus is going to talk about how the Father and I are going to come and make our home in you. And this is a reflection of the Father and the Son dwelling within each other. They're going to dwell in us and we're going to dwell in them. And that is where the power of ministry comes from. You see, ministry happens to advance through prayer. Why is it that we read in Acts 5 about these great numbers of people being converted and these miracles taking place? We can't get there unless we go to chapter 4 when they're beseeching God and crying out with boldness and the Father shook the place where they were praying. Acts 5 never happens without Acts 4. We can't expect this place to be filled. We can't expect that new building to be filled with people wanting to know about Christ and the gospel and how to live. We can't expect that to happen unless we are praying. Because Jesus says it's important. Because Jesus ties it together. Why does Jesus tie it together? So we don't get the glory when it happens. He gets the glory. He gets the honor. And through Him, the Father gets the honor. The Father is glorified in the Son when the Son answers prayers 
and brings about the works and words that further the kingdom. I got a glimpse of glory last night. Maybe some of you watched it on TV. And you're probably saying, how can you see glory on TV? I'm not talking about God's glory. But we went to the Diamondbacks game. And before the game, they had the pre-game ceremony where they retired Randy Johnson's number. They showed him glory. You see, because, you know, he emerged one last time out of the bullpen and everyone, 40,000 people are on their feet clapping and cheering for Randy Johnson because of his works on the diamond. And then old teammates, they showed video clips of some of them saying great things about Randy Johnson. Okay. And they gave Randy, the organization gave Randy Johnson a gift that floored him. You could see it on his face. He was filled with delight. It wouldn't have delighted me, but it delighted him. Okay? Glory. That was a, that was a picture of glory. Because what are we going to do when we get to heaven? We're going to clap. Okay? Even if you're not charismatic, you're going to clap, I tell you. Because the Bible says so. Okay? And your hands are going to go in the air because the Bible says so. And your face is going to hit the ground because the Bible says so. And you're going to rejoice in the works of Jesus Christ, which far surpass the works of Randy Johnson. You're going to cheer. You're going to sing. You're going to give gifts. It talks about that in Revelation 21. We're going to give him glory. And we're going to be able to give him glory because he's answered our prayers. And he's answered our prayers because he sits enthroned on high and he also dwells within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, when I read this, I can't help but think about Philippians chapter 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and work according to his good pleasure. And so we see in the ministry of Jesus, the Father was at work in Him to will and work according to His good pleasure. But also now for us, because we're united to Christ, the Spirit works in us to will and work according to His good pleasure, and He gets the glory. I'm glad God's at work. (laughs) If it was up to me, it would be bad. In so many ways. And so God dwells and works in us so that we will will and work. And the hidden dynamic in this is prayer. Prayer is vital. Indwelling. It is the mysterious key to the earthly ministry of Jesus as He revealed the Father through His words and His works. Indwelling is the mysterious key to the ministry of the disciples as they made Jesus known through their words and works. Indwelling is the mysterious key to our ministry of words and works to make Jesus known in Tucson. Or for you who are visiting from out of town, Dallas and Philadelphia, and anywhere else I may have forgotten. Jesus invites us to pray so that he will do great things in us. 
that he will produce words and works to bring glory to the Father. And do you care about the Father's glory? If you're born again, you do. Then pray that God will work in us, and that includes working in you, to will and work according to his good purpose in evangelism and discipleship and ministries of mercy and all of those things to the glory of God the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's humbling. To know that though you, in his earthly ministry you chose to work directly through your son, now you work through him through the means of your people. And that the, the work that Jesus did for us means that Jesus is now at work in us to change us. That we might be useful for him to work through us in word and deed, for the benefit of others, for the glory of the Father. And so I ask, Father, that that you would indeed be at work, stirring us up to pray, stirring up in us wisdom and discernment, stirring up in us desire to be engaged in these things, stirring up in us a longing for your glory, and recognizing that we're a part of that. That you didn't save us to be spectators, but to be servants through whom you change the world. As a father, help us to recognize, to reckon with the reality of you dwelling in us and what should take place as a result. Humble us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.